Good morning, church family. Good to see you this morning. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking at these two chapters kind of as like the end to this little mini two-part series within our series of Acts. My name is Brandon Zissi, lead pastor. So if you are new, visiting with us, so glad to have you here. Our heartbeat is to be simply about Jesus, to help people meet, know, and follow him. And the rationale behind that is really going to be layered into what we're talking about this morning. Last week, we started by asking ourselves a question. Do we believe that God can and will move again in our time? And it wasn't just a question that's full of semantics and just a question that you would ask in a church where the church would go, yeah, of course. It was really a question where I wanted you to be asking in your heart of hearts, do I really believe this? Do I believe that God can and will move again in our time? And we looked at a passage in Habakkuk chapter 3 that says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I've heard of your deeds. Do it again in our time. This is what our world needs, is to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And so last week we looked at a simple little verse. While they were praying and while they were fasting, they were preparing themselves for a move of God. Because the reality is, no matter how good we are, we can't plan a move of God. God moves when God decides to move. All we can do is plan and prepare for our hearts for a move of God. When we come to worship together... What are we doing? Do we expect God to move? Are we anticipating God to move? Are we offering ourselves to him as a living sacrifice? These were great questions to ask because as we prepare ourselves for move of God, God will nudge. God will prompt. He will start to tap on your shoulder and says, it's your turn to get in the game. And it's at that moment, what will you do? And if you decide to get in the game, what will you face? Which is why we're moving into this second part. When God moves, the enemy moves. And I want you to say it with me because you're going to hear it multiple times this morning. When God moves, that was lame. (laughs) Come on, humor me. When God moves, thank you. Jesus, we ask that this morning your spirit would lead, would guide. God, I ask that you would do it again. God, we want to be a church that prepares. We want to be a church that is filled with your spirit, walks by your spirit. We want to be a church that is eager and ready to say yes when you call. So God, I pray that this morning you would stir up faith, give us eyes to see, give us sober minds, and place inside of us a heart of courage a heart of bravery, a heart of anticipation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you always look or try to get the emergency exit row on a flight? You know that emergency seating, the exit row on the flight with the extra real estate, the extra inches, anybody? Thank you. I, like, like for me, it's always something I have to get. Like, I don't know what it is. I just want those three extra inches because I also I feel like I'm sitting in luxury. It's amazing, right? And so, like, this is why I hate Southwest, too. Like, I like Southwest, but I'm always a procrastinator, so I'm always checking in late, so I'm always in, like, C30. I never get the emergency room, so it's always kind of lame. But nonetheless, I'm willing to pay the extra money for that extra seat. However, the flight attendant annoys me. 
Just, just being honest, like, they'll come and they'll look at you after you sit down and you get yourself situated. I got my headphones on. I'm watching my latest episode of Gold Rush because that's what I do on flights. And all of a sudden they come and they're like, hey, are you physically able to? Yes, 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 I am. Go away, right? Like, you're just like, you're bothering me right now. And they're like, are you familiar with instruction sheet? In case, in case of emergency, we go down, you know what to do. And you're like, yes, I know what to do. Blah, 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 blah. And you write it off because you're already going. They're not, we're not going to crash anyways. But, like, it's so ridiculous when you think about it. You're flying at 30,000 feet in a tube, right? And you're sitting in the emergency exit row, so you kind of are on the front line of the emergency evacuation. You think that the responsible thing would be to anticipate a potential crash, so I would prepare myself to do that. Oh, but I already know it all anyway, so go away. Friends, I believe we do the same thing when it comes to the mission briefing that Jesus gives us. When Jesus forewarns us of what we're going to face as we follow him, I think a lot of times we're like, yeah, 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 I know. Like, for instance, if we were to look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives his disciples this, like, mission brief. Like, here's what you're going to face. Here's what I want you to do as you go out. It was like this preparation for what life following Jesus would kind of be like for them. And he's telling them, like, hey, go here, heal the sick, cast out the demons, don't take any extra purse, don't take any bags, you know, for sandals or a staff, whatever town, look for a person of peace, I'll let you in. If you don't find one, move on to the next house. And then verse 16, behold, guys, I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Like, why would Jesus say that? Unless he's prepping them for what it's going to come. I'm sending you all like sheep amongst the wolves. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, right? And he keeps going on. He's like, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in synagogues. Maybe I don't want the emergency exit row anymore. And we keep reading this, like if you're stumbled upon this in your quiet time, you're like, yada, 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 Jesus, calm down with the oppression rhetoric. Can we just get to the worship now? I think a lot of times we do this. We downplay the reality of what Jesus tells us what's going to happen. Because friends, I'm telling you, like if I knew or if you knew that mid-flight you were going to go down, I'm willing to bet you would read that instruction manual differently. There is no if in following Jesus if you will face opposition. You will. So how are you prepared? What will you do when it comes? And thanks be to God that we see this laid out in Acts for us. And it encourages us and it challenges us and it just calls us out to be people of courage and boldness. Friends, I have come to believe more and more because, quite frankly, it's part of my own temptation as well that there's many of us in the church that are trying to make the life of following Jesus super comfortable and super cozy, removing of any stress and struggle. Quite frankly, we would rather have a faith of following Jesus sitting in front of a fireplace with a blanket and a cup of coffee with Kenny G playing and nice, easy going. That's what we would prefer. This sheep among wolves thing? Come on, that's not for me. But you cannot read scripture and not see that head on. 
when soldiers are called into battle, they've gone through boot camp, there's mission briefing, they know what to expect, they prepare accordingly, they anticipate opposition, but they also anticipate total victory. I think that's the missing piece. I think we go, we know we'll face opposition, but we don't think there's going to be total victory. And so a lot of times we go into the move of God already defeated. You can't plan a move of God, but you can prepare for a move of God. Because when God moves, that was your cue. When God moves, the enemy moves. So let's look at Acts 13, starting with verse 4. After their time of worship, as they were preparing for a move of God, the Holy Spirit nudged the church and sent Barnabas and Saul, better known as Paul, into mission. They laid hands on them and prayed, and they sent them out. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which is about 15 miles walk from Antioch. It's the port area. And from there, they got on a boat and sailed roughly about 110 miles to the island of Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salome, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So real quick here, this is the fashion and the custom of the Apostle Paul. When they would go to an area, they would first go to the synagogues to preach the gospel first to the Jews, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It would give them the opportunity to respond to Jesus. And so that would happen. And the second thing that we see is this person named John that's with them. This character is going to be important for the second point of this message. John, better known as John Mark, was also better known as the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And just for fun, in Mark 14, I believe it's verse 51 to 52, in a really weird scenario, you don't see this in Matthew, Luke, or John, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was being arrested, Mark writes about himself, I believe, and a bunch of other scholars believe this too, that there was this young man who fled away naked from the scene. And I'm like, Mark, you're embarrassing yourself. This is brilliant. That was a freebie. Bible trivia, who was the naked young man who ran away? John Mark. You're welcome. So here we go, verse 6. When they'd gone through the whole island, so they'd gone through the island of Cyprus, they went as far as Paphos, and they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. God was moving. That's all they knew. They didn't have a real plan of attack. They were walking and following the Spirit of God. They get to Paphos. No one could have anticipated what was about to come. Paphos was the seat of the Roman government on this island. Sergius Paulus is a Roman governor. He's a person of great influence. He has the Caesar's ear. Great authority, great wealth. He's a cultural shaper, mover, influencer. That's who he is. Think of Pontius Pilate. Kind of the same position here. Somehow, some way, God is at work stirring in Sergius's heart because he's attached himself to this Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation. Why is this important? Sergius must have been someone looking for the truth. Bar-Jesus 
was a false prophet of the Jewish way. So in other words, he would get close to the truth of Judaism, but he would twist it just enough to distort the message, to make it about him. In other words, I would actually say this is overt demonic influence to keep Sergius from ever discovering the heart of God. God was still moving in Sergius that when Paul and Barnabas showed up, he summoned them so that they could hear the word of God. God is at work. God is on the move. That's what we see here. And now you get this moment where Paul and Barnabas are going to start to begin to face opposition. In our text this morning, we're going to see three different layers of opposition that is true then and is true now for us as well. When God moves, the enemy moves. And we're going to see this. The first form of opposition is demonic seduction. Demonic seduction. Bar Jesus is a magician. He's not David Copperfield. He's not doing cheap card tricks. He's not pulling bunnies out of the hats. This is the occult. He's interacting with the demonic, medium, necromancers, all that kind of stuff. Greatly influenced by the demonic. This is overt demonic influence. And sometimes this is the kind of the demonic oppression we will face. But more often than not, what we see is more of the scheme that the enemy uses than the actual overt demonic oppression. This is why I'm saying it's demonic seduction. He's a false prophet. This is what we're seeing here, okay? So now, verse 8. As Paul and Barnabas are preaching the good news of Jesus, Elimaeus, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This is how the enemy always works. Always. I want to take a moment and just go, what's true then is true now. Okay, the enemy, Satan, attaches himself to people of influence, people in positions of power and authority, because he knows that that's how culture is shaped and how culture is formed. We see that. It's very true today. And by saying that, I am not saying that every leader is demonic. But for us to ignore the fact that demonic influence is at play in positions of leadership and authority would be for us to be rather naive. So he's clearly at work. But here's also why I want us to remember and to understand. Satan hates God. He hates people. He hates the movement of God. He hates God's word. He's the prince of this world. He's in control. And he knows that to control the right people is to control the main cultural movement so that people wouldn't ever hear the good news of Jesus. His schemes are, are deceptive and subtle and seductive. Now, I know, okay, like, I know the temptation in the church world, what happens in a congregation when a pastor starts talking about demons and spiritual warfare. A few things happen. One, there's a group of people who go, this church is strange. Are they going to pass out snakes now? Yeah, it's coming real soon. Right? They kind of go, and they start to think like, oh, demonic. It's the eyes flopping around the back of the head, the head spinning, and the pitchfork and tail and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the other side, the other group that like see a demon underneath every rock, and they're super excited. About time we're talking about devil. Yes! <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. 
It's the people who say, the enemy's against me because I didn't get my parking spot. No, you just didn't get your parking spot, right? So we, we have this tension when it comes to it. And, and I, I honestly think like we got to be sober-minded and realize that we have a true enemy that is against you, that hates you, and his schemes are to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. Hates God with a passion. Jesus' ministry was in direct conflict with the enemy. He was always walking on enemy-occupied territory. In fact, the language of the gospel is going to set the captives free. Prisoners of war, those caught in sin and death, like we are to break down demonic strongholds like Jesus gave us the authority over them like that's how the death and the empty tomb influenced this whole movement when Jesus said you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes why so that you be my witnesses so you can tell people a better story of what you've seen and heard is that power really for that or is that power to stand in courage and bravery in the face of opposition friends don't take this further than you should, but the reality is many of you, all of you, have faced demons and more than you even realized. Maybe it hasn't been like someone demonically like possessed, but you live in a world, in a culture that is influenced demonically. You've ever felt guilt, shame, and accusation in your own life? Scripture would teach us to understand that that's one of the tactics and schemes of the devil. I love how one author writes about one, some of the schemes of the enemy. And here's what he says. I have the quote up here for you because it's long, but it's really good. Satan is the one appearing in movies, telling us that romantic love and sexual pleasures are the keys to fulfillment. He's the one behind an economic system that teaches us that money is the key to success and happiness. He's the one who sits in a psychologist's chair offering ultimate hope in life apart from God. He works in and through governments that coddle people into thinking that government help is the answer. He's the one teaching from pulpits that life is about you, that God wants you to make you rich, and that hell is not for real, and that the standards of the Bible are for a different time and place. The enemy is a master hunter. It's a lion wanting to devour you. He's a cat. A cat. <laughs> Cats are evil. <laughs> to be a Christian is to be a dog lover. It's just... <laughs> no emails. When God moves, the enemy moves. You can't escape this fight. Jesus briefed us. We prepare for a move of God, and when we move with God, we will face opposition. Now back to Bar-Jesus. He's opposing the word of God, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Have you ever prayed for someone who doesn't know Jesus and just shared the gospel with them and tried everything, and it constantly feels like it's just falling on deaf ears, or they're always distracted, or this is always happening Jesus taught us in a parable of the seed and the sower that sometimes like the gospel goes out, it's like seed that falls on the soil and the birds of the air quickly snatch it away. That's what this is. But Paul and Barnabas understanding that he who is in them, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, stopped and looked at Bar-Jesus straight in the eye. 
Look at this now. This is, this is just brilliant. But Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is like, I, I pictured this moment. Like, my dad used to do this to me. Like, Brandon, eyes here. Especially when I'm in trouble. I'm like, <laughs> right? And I realized the apple did far too far from the tree because now I do that to my kids. Like anytime I'm like punishing them or trying to get their attention, I'm like, hey, look at me. And I'm like, why do I do that? Because I want to feel like I'm in power, <laughs> right? But, but it's like in this moment, it's like Paul and Barnabas are calling out someone who's influenced demonically, saying, look at me. Because they understood their power. They understood the authority. They understood that when Jesus conquered death, that in Luke 10, it says this, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples, like, you're going to tread on serpents and scorpions, and you have the authority over every evil spirit. So they just called him out. Paul staring at the demonic influence, saying, you son of the devil, which is a play on the name Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. He goes, no, no, you're a false prophet. You're a demonic seducer. You're the son of the devil. I mean, this is, this is strong. You enemy of all righteousness full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked? Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Bar Jesus might stop, but the enemy will not stop at making crooked the straight and narrow way of Jesus. This is how the enemy works. Friends, what do you do when you face opposition like this? Face it. Don't back off. Don't shrink back. Understand your identity in Jesus and know that you've been given power to be his witness. And that is very much part of this. Satan will not stop seducing people. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, warning that in the later times, the Holy Spirit expressively says in the later times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, in other words, seductive spirits and teachings of demons. Well, through who and from whom? Are these demons like preaching up front? No. Through the insincerity of liars, of people who've been influenced Anytime someone is opposing the simple message of Jesus, it is someone who is making crooked the straight way of Jesus. Keep preaching Jesus. Keep moving forward. Don't back off. Don't back down. Keep going. Because he who is in you, like we, we, we can't forget this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The battle wasn't between Paul and Bar-Jesus. The battle was really for Sergius Paulus's soul. That's what was at stake. And that's why they didn't back down. Verse 12 tells us the proconsul believed. The Roman governor believed. When he saw what happened to Bar-Jesus, because Paul put this blindness spell on him, which is kind of cool. And then, but he said he believed on account of the words of the teaching so yes, when God moves, the enemy moves. But let me add to it. When God moves, 
God wins. Always. If the Holy Spirit is nudging and leading, the Holy Spirit can only lead to life. That means you will face opposition. And it also means God will win. Because God is on the move. So that's the first form of opposition we see is demonic seduction. The second that we see is internal. It's internal opposition. Okay? And I do believe that oftentimes is demonically influenced. Our discouragement and our fear and our cowardice is oftentimes internal, bred by the little thoughts and lies that come from the enemy. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos. They're leaving the island of Cyprus. And they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Pause. Now, I know unless you are aware of the story of John Mark, you probably at this point don't realize what he's really doing. Because we read this and we're like, what's the big deal? John went back to Jerusalem. Maybe he had to go back. Maybe that was all the time he could give. But we know because in Acts 15 that John Mark didn't leave them innocently. Like he, he essentially abandoned them. Maybe he was afraid, he was discouraged. We don't know. But what we do know in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas were about to go on their second mission, like Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again, and Paul's like, no. He abandoned us once before. He's a liability. And they, Barnabas and Paul, disagreed so vehemently that they split ways and went in different directions. So that tells me that John Mark didn't just walk away innocently. We don't know what it was. Like the journey to where they were going was dangerous and it was well known. They were crossing this mountainous region where tons of robbers were there. Maybe John Mark did what we always do in our worldly wisdom, create a pro-con list. Maybe John Mark on the ship there just went pros. Well, I get to be with Paul and Barnabas. Con demons, con running out of food, con check. And maybe he just went, there's more cons than pros. I'm going to go home. Friends, never, ever create a pro-con list when it comes to following Jesus. There is no pro-con list when it comes to obedience. Because if we understand the mission briefing right, we understand where Jesus leads, there will be more cons than pros on our earthly list. Will there not? Opposition? Slander? Persecution? No. I don't, there will always be more cons. But the reality is we listen to Jesus and do what he says, which means there's always just pros. Maybe we need to reorient how we see a pro-con list and take up the mantle of the Apostle Paul, who only always saw pro. To me, to live is Christ, pro. To die, gain, pro. Let's go. But a lot of times we create more cons or we create more excuses, we're distracted, or we do whatever it is. And a lot of times we have actually abandoned the mission before we even started. I don't know what caused John Mark to give up here. 
But I do know that Jesus is very clear. In Luke chapter 9, when three people came and said, Master, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus makes it very clear. Hey, count the cost. Birds have nets, foxes have dens, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Okay? Follow me. Uh, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go back and da-da-da. No, no, let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me. Oh, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first... Blah, 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 blah. Anybody who puts their hands to the plow and looks back is not fit. Count the cost. Because in following Jesus, friends, there is only pro. That doesn't mean it's not going to be like difficult. Of course it will, because Jesus already said, you're sheep among wolves. You're going to go. You're going to face persecution. Read the mission briefing. It's going to come. And that's why we have to prepare ourselves for a move of God. Because we will face discouragement. We will face fear. We will see more cons and pros. We will. Friends, I know, I know, I know. Like if you were with us last week and I said maybe some of you right now are feeling God nudge or put things in your heart that he's asking you to do. I also know that there were some of us in this room, if we were honest, ready to talk ourselves out of obedience to that. Don't. Prepare your heart for a move of God. When he leads, you say, yes, you will face opposition. Because when God moves, the enemy moves. But when God moves, God wins. It will happen. And the third opposition that we see is subtle. More subtle today. It wasn't so subtle in these stories, but it comes from religious institution, religious tradition, and religious dogma. So what Paul goes on, he goes to this place and he preaches the gospel to Jew and to Gentile. And they love what he's saying. And Paul gets this following. Paul and Barnabas get this following. They're with him. They're talking about Jesus, kind of starting to begin the discipleship process with them. And they said, Paul, we would love for you to come back next Sabbath and preach again. And they do. And the whole city comes out, it tells us. And when the Jews saw this, let me get the right verse. In verse 46, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. They were filled with jealousy. Jealousy is fear of losing something that you have. Like, they were fearful that they were going to lose their influence with the people or maybe lose their tradition and their heritage or whatever it was. But Paul makes it very, very clear that they thrust aside the good news of Jesus. They, they carelessly just put it off because their hearts weren't open to it. And so what did they do? Their jealousy led them to conflicting the message, distorting the message of Jesus in this moment. Now, reason why I am referencing this as potentially, I should say potentially because I don't want to give room to think that there isn't, why I'm saying this, that religious opposition is demonic, I want you to see and hear why. James chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. But if we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Jealousy and selfish ambition, it's not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, demonic. Satan was jealous. That's kind of what launched his whole campaign, was jealousy. 
the religious institution was jealous of the movement of God. And from now to all the way through chapter 14, that is exactly what opposes the movement of Jesus, was religious opposition. This group began to follow Paul and Barnabas everywhere they went. And it says that they poisoned the minds of believer and unbeliever, creating division amongst the crowd, distorting what they're saying, saying, no, it's not just Jesus. Don't listen to that. It's Jesus plus whatever it is. And in this case, we know exactly what this crowd was propping up as the truth. It was following little aspects of the law, specifically circumcision. And Paul addressed this whole issue on in the letter to the churches in Galatia. And he says that if anybody preaches to you any other gospel, any other message outside of Jesus, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. In other words, it comes from the pit of hell. Any religious institution that teaches a message besides Christ alone is demonically influenced. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, because Paul would say that if it's by works or it's by anything else, it empties the cross of its power. And Paul is so blunt. In Galatians chapter 5, he's like, those who are causing you trouble, who are poisoning your mind, saying that it's Jesus plus this, specifically in circumcision, he goes to the length, he says, yeah, they're talking about circumcision. Well, I wish they would completely emasculate themselves then. They don't do what they preach, in other words. It's strong language. They didn't back down. So how do we face these moments you realize that God is at work there because what we see was in the midst of that opposition, even though they didn't receive the good news of Jesus, tons of other people did. And they became disciples of Jesus. But a lot of times, we give too much attention to those religious institutions that are completely thrust aside the good news of Jesus for the sake of their doctrine and tradition and man-made customs. What do we do then? We do what Jesus told us to do. And we do exactly what Paul and Barnabas did here. You shake the dust off your feet and you move on. Don't throw your pearls to swine. They're not going to receive it. Don't let the squeaky wheels squeak more than they're squeaking. Move on. God is at work. God is on the move. And the reason why I'm bringing all of this up is because I want us as a church to truly believe that God is going to move again. And God is moving again. And that he wants to use us to be part of that movement. But we have to be very aware of the mission brief. You will have an enemy and he will come at you at three areas. There will be overt demonic seduction that will always come against you in the form of persecution too. There will be inward persecution. You retreating before you even start. And there will always be religious oppression. But here's what I want to encourage us with. Bravery and courage only exist where there's opposition. 
We see this model in the book of Acts where the disciples and the apostles were constantly praying for boldness, praying for courage because they were anticipating themselves to go out in boldness, which means they were anticipating oppression, opposition. And I think more often than not, church, we use this phrase as an excuse more than reality as it is. Well, God closed the door. Sometimes God does close the door. But oftentimes we say that as an excuse to not keep going. We face the first bump in the road, God closed the door. Right? So I look at the story in Acts chapter 14. <laughs> I mean, this is just, this is just nuts. This religious opposition dragged Paul out, stone him, think he's dead, throw him on a garbage heap and leave him for dead. Disciples gather around Paul. He gets up, goes back into town. What is he doing? Resting and preaching. The next day, he goes back out to another place, preaching, goes back to the town that he got stoned. What's he doing? Preaching. I don't know about you, but that would have been a lot of cons on my pro-con list, and I probably would have said, God closed the door. I'm out. But that's not what Paul saw because he saw people, even though there was opposition, he saw people responding to the good news of Jesus and he stayed in the midst of that opposition, understanding that when God moves, the enemy moves. He wasn't surprised because he also knew that when God moves, God wins. Look at the last verse in chapter 14. Last two verses. They go back to Antioch after this whole journey. And they're celebrating and giving the news of all that God has done. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Friends, you don't know what God's going to do through your obedience. You will face opposition. You will face opposition. Persecution from culture inside of you, fear, doubt, distraction, 100%. And even at times, religious oppression will come upon you. But keep going because God is at move. God is on the move. And when God moves, God wins. So I want us to end this time. Because I know there's things in your heart that God is stirring you up to do. He's prodding you and nudging you and tapping on your shoulder saying, get in the game. Like, I don't want us to walk out of here already retreating and already deciding that the cons outweigh the pros. I want us to stand and sing in faith, believing that we're going to see a victory. Believing that we're going to see God achieve a victory through our obedience. So church, I want you to stand with me. I know this is a new song for our church, but I want this just to be a declaration of faith together. So let's stand as I pray and I ask God, to move in our hearts in this time. Lord, I pray that that we would understand clearly that you you, you desire to move. The church is on mission until your son Jesus comes. God, and I pray that we, inside of us, not be surprised or intimidated by the fact that we're going to face opposition. Oh my goodness, there are so many things in our culture that are growing more and more and more anti-Jesus. You warned us about that. 
The demonic seductive movement is full on display. God, I ask that we wouldn't back down, we wouldn't shrink back, but we would stare at eye to eye, understanding that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Lord, help us to understand that people's lives, people's forevers are on the line. So God, I pray that in this moment, it would just be an offering to you, an offering of like our faith responding in believing of what you're gonna do. So God, we give you space. Stir in our hearts. Give us boldness. Make us brave. Help us see. Help us see you in all of it.